this is Christina Montemayor, and welcome to our first episode of our Top Consult series with the Poem Peeps. We will be joined today by two of our colleagues and interventional pulmonary experts, and as always with the Poem Peeps, joining me today is Dave Rafaro. Hey, Ferv, how's it going? Good, going well. Excited to be back here. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us again. Super excited for this episode, uh, and I'm going to learn a couple things so that I don't panic next time I see someone with hemoptysis. So we're really pumped to have some experts here joining us. Uh, first off is Matt Schimmel. He's an assistant professor of medicine uh, and an interventional pulmonologist at Emory University. Uh, we met each other during residency, and he's also uh, an unofficial pie and sweets expert. This is his, uh, his good month in Halloween. Hey, Matt, how's things going? Good, Dave. Thanks for having me. Next, I'd like to introduce Chris Cap. He's currently an instructor and interventional pulmonologist at the University of Illinois College of Medicine. And Cap and I had the honor of being co-fellows together, and I've learned a lot from him. So welcome, Cap, and we're glad you can join us today. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, this is an exciting uh, opportunity, and uh, you're a little, you're being a little bit modest. You were definitely my chief fellow and molded me more than, uh, more than the other way around. So, Well, I appreciate that, Cap. I definitely learned a lot of pulmonary procedures from you, but most importantly, I learned what a true March Madness man you are, and glad you were able to make sure that we had a fun March Madness every year. As our mission with the Pulm Peeps, it is to provide a platform of multiple formats to engage in pulmonary and critical care education to learners of all levels that you can access anytime and anywhere. One of these formats is our top consults, where Dave and I will be discussing common pulmonary and critical care consult scenarios. We will use cases to build diagnostic approaches and differentials, as well as to develop a framework to help with triage, diagnostic workup, and therapeutic approaches. Yeah, we're hoping that by having this, all of you can see consults and in the internal medicine service and offer up a good explanation and a good approach to your pulmonary colleagues. And if you're a budding pulmonologist, have a nice guideline to sort of follow when you're seeing these patients. All right, so we have our first consult. We have a 35-year-old man, history of cystic fibrosis, and he's here with hemoptysis. He's on four liters nasal cannula and saturating well. So I'll just say, these, this is the type of page that I get, and I especially got in the early part of my pulmonary fellowship, and my heart starts beating, my stomach starts sinking, because hemoptysis can be super scary, and I'm not always sure exactly what the right thing to do. Is it left side down, left side up? Like, who knows what's going on? We wanted to have this be our first consult that we're addressing on the Palm Peeps so everybody knows how to handle it. So, Christina, just to start with you, you know, we've all been in this situation in pulmonary and in the ICU. How do you start with sort of your initial approach to thinking about hemoptysis? Thanks, Ferv. How I like to approach things is first, I really like to just look at the clinical stability of the patient. So is the patient hemodynamically stable? So kind of looking at trend of vital signs. Two, is there any associated respiratory distress? So looking at oxygenation parameters as well as the need for any supplemental oxygen. And third, can the patient safely protect the airway and or be able to clear secretions? You know, I think one thing we're probably all thinking of is, can the, does a patient need to be emergently intubated or not? So once I determine clinical stability, I really then try to classify hemoptysis as small volume or non-life-threatening versus large volume or life-threatening hemoptysis. And we may, amongst the four of us, may have some differences, and I know there's some differences in the literature as to what defines large volume or massive hemoptysis, but I usually think of more than 150 cc's or half a cup in about a 24-hour time period, 
or more than 100 cc's um, per hour to be consistent with massive hemoptysis. What about you, Dave? What are What is your kind of initial approach or thoughts when you first hear about hemoptysis? Yeah, I kind of do the same thing as you. You know, I feel like clinical stability for any consult is the first thing that comes. And then that size thing is the same thing I use. You know, I, I kind of have the 100 cc's, 150 cc's. I'm not great. Don't use that that much, mostly because I feel like patients don't talk in those terms, even though I kind of do. I always kind of go with the half a cup, you know, which then to me seems like it's a large amount that's going on. And then, you know, bright red blood versus mixed with sputum, these types of things making me a little bit more concerned. But I'm curious about you guys, Matt, Chris, is there something that do you care about the volume? Is there some amount that, you know, really triggers you or what's your initial approach to this when you uh, get the consult? Yeah, it's a good question, Dave. So I think, you know, amount is a tricky uh, thing to quantify, uh, both for physicians and patients. I think a lot of times both both of us are going to either overestimate or underestimate the actual amount that, that patients are producing. So I think, you know, the actual amount trying to quantify it is less important. And exactly what um, you guys were saying that any amount that actually is leading to hemodynamic instability or making the patient clinically unstable or has the potential to would be something that I would think about as being on the massive side. And then as long as the patient's doing well and able to protect their airway and has enough physiologic reserve to handle the amount of blood that they're producing, that that could be potentially less massive or less significant. I feel like that probably makes more sense too. It's like, you know, putting a number on it, you know, really doesn't help with the patient in front of you, but looking at them and seeing how they're handling it, it makes sense to me. Yeah. So, and then the next thing I always do, Monty, is I kind of think about where it's coming from, just to even start my differential. And I feel like sometimes with these patients, there's this little bit battle early on. It's like, is this the lungs? Is it coming from the upper airway? Is it ear, nose, and throat? Is it GI? And I feel like everybody's telling the other person to stick a camera down and see where it's happening. But, you know, my rule of thumb is just to always assume it's real. Always assume it's coming from the lungs and it's my problem to solve. And only when I feel confident that it's not that, then I, you know, turn to my colleagues for a little bit of help, you know, ENT and, and GI, if it's coming from another source. And then my next question in that source is just what, what pictures do I need? You know, can I, am I going to chest x-ray? Am I going to CT scan? Are they stable enough? Do I have to just put a bronchoscope down and how can I kind of decide where these things are coming from? Finally, for me, and we're going to talk all about this, you know, I think about the perfusion of the lungs just to, you know, have an idea of, what's happening internally. So as everyone probably knows, you know, our lungs have two supplies. We have our bronchial arteries and we have our pulmonary arteries. Uh, and both of these can be sources for hemoptysis. And the interventions we're going to have are going to be slightly different based on these and their presentations. And I, I think we're going to delve you know, into this further. So Matt, any other questions you have for our consultants? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Um, so I think Amount, like we were talking about, but also frequency. So how often uh, the patient's producing blood in, in what quantity is important. I also often ask about clots. So if patients are producing clots from the airway, that can be a bit more concerning because usually that means that there's enough blood that's been pooled in, in the airways where it's actually had time to clot and they're not able to cough it up. So that's often a question I ask. And then Sometimes I ask about color. So if the color that's coming up is bright red, sometimes that signifies more that it might be coming from the bronchial circulation. A lot of patients that we work with, especially in intervention, interventional pulmonary, may have large airway tumors or, or a lot of significant disease that impacts large pulmonary arteries. And if you ever have a patient come to the ER and they have dark purple blood coming out, that's, 
that can be a, a bit more concerning. Yeah, that that's awesome. And I feel like you alluded to something that we were thinking about with the bronchial and the pulmonary circulation, you know, as well. So the bronchial arteries are sort of only about probably 1% of the cardiac output, but they're sort of having their traditional bright red arterial blood that we think about coming out, where our pulmonary circulation provides probably more oxygen to our lung tissues, but is a little bit, you know, accounts for more than 99% of the cardiac output and a little bit lower pressure just because it's diffusing throughout the lungs all together and then a little bit more deoxygenated blood uh that there's great things for you know everybody to remember as they're going into it and then the other questions i ask about are just you know things looking at their underlying physiologic reserve and possible etiologies and, and i think a lot of those questions probably overlap but you know do they have any underlying pulmonary disease any other cardiovascular disease are they on home oxygen are they on blood thinners things like that. So I think it's a, a lot different if someone comes in and they're on home oxygen, but they're stable on it compared to someone who's not on any oxygen and at home and comes in is requiring like three to four liters. So I think those are two different stories about who can tolerate the amount of blood that they're producing. Thanks, Matt. You bring up some questions that every provider caring for someone with hemophysis should be asking. And to summarize, the amount, frequency, and color of expectorated blood is important to know, as well as any associated clots, underlying pulmonary and cardiac disease, baseline oxygen needs, and finally knowing if your patient is on systemic anticoagulation. In order to provide a little bit more clarity on our patient and try to answer some of those questions, I do wanna expand on what Dave said earlier. So we know we have a, a 35-year-old male with a history of cystic fibrosis. He has a baseline FEV1% predicted of 55% who is not on home oxygen at baseline, and he's not on any type of um, routine anticoagulation or antiplatelet therapy. He noticed increased sputum production with a drop in his home FAV1 to 47% predicted and was started on IV antibiotics in the last 48 hours. Over the past day though, he said he started coughing more and this morning brought up about a half a cup of bright red blood. You know, while in the ED, he required up to four liters nasal cannula to maintain SAT greater than 92%, but coughed up about another um, fourth of a cup of blood and desatted again to the 80s, requiring increase in his oxygen to six liters. So I want to go to you now, Chris. How do you think about acute management for patients like this, even before you have a clear diagnosis? Yeah, so I think... No, the most important thing and, and the thing that we get harped on, you know, even back in medical school is, you know, the airway. Uh, so, and, I, and, and essentially I want to make sure the airway is secured and that doesn't always mean reflexively placing an endotracheal tube. You know, I just want to know if the patient is managing their own secretions first and foremost. So in this person, it sounds like they're coughing up some stuff, but it, maybe they're starting to get a little bit overwhelmed. So in that case, you know, I, I'm starting to think, well, do I need, is it, does an endotracheal tube need to be placed to kind of help manage some of the, uh, to, to manage the bleeding that's going on? So, you know, you're having a discussion with both the ER consultant and potentially even the anesthesiologist, if I'm not in-house, about optimal timing of placing uh, an endotracheal tube if needed. Now, if somebody is maintaining their oxygen saturation and they're coughing up their own secretions, I, I don't want an endotracheal tube in because uh, the most effective way to clear secretions is your own cough in most patients. 
So after kind of jumping down that pathway, then I'm trying to figure out, you know, where is the bleeding coming from? Um, and we've talked about the, the circulation a little bit. About 90% of hemoptysis comes from the bronchial circulation. It's a little bit higher pressure. So that gives you the um, kind of the bleeding that we're, we're all kind of scared about typically. And how do you know? The, the best way to isolate or find out where the bleeding is from is either imaging or bronchoscopically. You know, with, with chest X, there was a, a review of about 80 patients I, I, I looked at um, where they showed that chest X-ray was only effective in localizing the site or the side of bleeding uh, in for, less than half the patients. So it's really not a great test. If somebody is stable and can undergo a CT with contrast, preferably, that would be my first imaging of, you know, modality of choice. Obviously, if they're not stable for the CT scanner, then we intubate and figure that out later. And then speak, going down that pathway a little more about the airway, a couple of pearls about the type of ET tube, you know, a large bore, um, eight and a half or bigger will help uh, facilitate clot removal and blood removal. Um, and then I always stay away from double lumen tubes in these situations because they're, you have two smaller tubes and it's harder to clear secretions and a lot of times you have trouble placing them. And then I'm thinking, you know, you know, then a little bit down the road, I want to keep the good lung good. So finding a source or the site is important. And then also reversing any systemic issues if they're present. You know, are they on anticoagulation? Uh, is their INR high? Are their platelets low? Um, things of that nature. So all this is kind of cooking in my head, but the most important thing is uh, the airway first. That's awesome, Chris. I really like the idea that, you know, the patient coughing up, that's our best mechanism out there. I feel like the, you know, reflexively people are like, oh, let's just intubate them now. But you're totally right. I mean, if they're bringing it up, you know, we're never going to be able to mimic that. All right. So to recap, we have a case, sounds like a large volume, potentially life-threatening hemoptysis with sort of recurrent episodes of bright red blood and desaturations. And based on some of the things that Matt told us asked about that bright red blood makes us a little bit more worried about this being a bronchial circulation and sort of a high pressure bleed that's going to be a problem. And then Chris told us, you know, we're going to have to think about localizing. So we're going to see how stable our patient is. Are we going to be able to image or do we have to protect the airway right away and then uh, isolate after that? Thanks for summarizing, Dave. And I want to go back to Matt at this time. And Matt, just kind of thinking about our current case and, you know, potentially other scenarios that you've seen, what are the most common causes of life-threatening hemoptysis? Yeah, thanks, Monty. I think a lot of your life-threatening hemoptysis cases are going to be patients who have chronic inflammation in their lungs, so chronic diseases. Usually that's going to be patients with bronchiectasis or, you know, prior TB with a cavity that now has a mycetoma or fungus bald, things like that. And the reason is if you have a lot of disease like that that's been chronic and has inflammation that's been increasing over time, your bronchial arteries will hypertrophy in that area. And if you have a cavity that's enlarging as well, it could erode into a bronchial artery. And so that that often is what happens in these patients with, you know, CF with with bronchiectasis over time or patients who have a mycetoma. So I tend to think of those patients first. Obviously, you know, any patient who comes in with bleeding could eventually evolve into large volume or massive hemoptysis as well. Anyone who has lung cancer or someone who's, you know, significantly therapeutically anticoagulated and has some type of other underlying uh, airway disease or, or parenchymal disease as well. Thanks, Matt. I really like your framework of approaching common causes of life-threatening hemoptysis, which includes a history of chronic lung disease, such as CF or non-CF bronchiectasis, underlying pulmonary malignancy that may cause local infiltration or nearby vessel erosion, and 
Now what you really pointed out too is that it's really important to know if your patient is also on concurrent systemic anticoagulation. Chris, I'd like to turn to you next. I think it's important for learners to understand how to think about whether hemoptysis may be from a localized or a diffuse source. Can you comment on how you think about the two? Yeah, you know, I think the patient's history is is going to help guide this. You know, as Matt alluded to, bronchiectasis is not usually a diffuse throughout both lungs. Usually you're going to have one spot. I'm not saying that it can't be. I'm saying you're not going to bleed um, diffusely from multiple areas of bronchiectasis typically. You know, I also think about pulmonary abscesses and cancers as a stuff that's being more localized. And then I get some red flags in my head when I start hearing about systemic uh, autoimmune diseases or, or recent chemotherapies or, or, or toxic drugs. And then the other thing that I always want to make sure of is, is this a patient that's had recent trauma or procedural manipulation in particular have, you know, has this person had a trach in the last few months? Because, uh, you know, some of those things are going to change my first, my first, the direction I'm going, um, particularly if a tracheonominate fistula is, is, is in the back of my mind. Thanks, Chris. I know that Firth mentioned earlier that a hemoptysis consult tends to make his heart race, but a tracheo-anominate fistula, ooh, I'm pretty sure that's going to make every consultant's heart race. You know, one thing that we haven't brought up yet in regards to hemoptysis is diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, or DAH. I know that hemoptysis may not always be present when DAH is confirmed, but I think an important topic for us to review. Chris, how do you think about DAH? Yeah, you know, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, the first-year medical student in, lo- in me loves that this is named uh, very aptly as opposed to, you know, an eponym that I have to figure out what it is. It, it, it does scare me because typically there's, you know, as an interventional pulmonologist, you know, if there's something localized, I can, I can find that and either treat it or put something in to block it and keep the good lung good. Diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, on the other hand, is, is, is as the name says, you know, it's everywhere. Um, so as I'm going, what I do is systematically go through each of the airways. If my CT scan either wasn't able to be obtained or doesn't localize something specifically for me, you know, I'll start on one side, clear it out, um, and then go check out the other and clear it out. And if, you know, by the time I'm done clearing out the left, if I come back and it's bleeding again, then creeping into my head that this probably is diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. You can certainly send some labs to evaluate you know, for an inflammatory process, but that's not going to be right away. You hear the classic serial aliquots that get uh, bloodier or darker as, as time goes on. And I have seen that once or twice before, which I think can support your diagnosis, but I don't think it's necessarily a be-all, end-all. The other thing, you know, I, I, would, I have read some, some papers about people uh, doing some biopsies that can help support like an arteritis or a capillaritis, but uh, you're going to be pretty hard-pressed to get me to do a, a transbronchial biopsy in somebody who's uh, bleeding like that. Um, and then the other thing that usually makes me chuckle a little bit that's in the diagnostic criteria for diffuse alveolar hemorrhage is that uh, the diffusion capacity for carbon monoxide is usually a little bit elevated. You know, my next step after bronchoscopy is not typically to, to rush them to the uh, PFT lab for that test. But uh, so I think, you know, to, to, to kind of summarize, just be systematic about how you're doing the bronchoscopy. And then if you're seeing bleeding from multiple different sites, then I think that's your kind of your, or if you can't pinpoint a site, you just keep having oozing. I think that's your, um, that's your diagnosis. That's cool. Yeah. I do like that. You know, emergent PFDs right now. Get the carbon monoxide canister up here. <laughs> Matt, anything else to add? 
DAH is interesting too, because, you know, not a lot of, you know, at least a third of your patients with DAH are not going to present with hemoptysis. They, they may have a lot of oozing in their airways, but they may not present actually coughing it up. And so I think your first instinct may point to DAH just from the CT pattern or the imaging pattern if, if patients are stable enough to get that. Sometimes kind of that classic, you know, perihilar diffuse distribution can kind of initially spark interest in, in that being a potential diagnosis. And then you know, as Chris was saying, going in and being systematic, and if you are seeing diffuse oozing, doing your your serial lavages and seeing if that's yielding or helpful. All right, so that was great. That was an awesome discussion of DAH, the things that we can look for. And back to our case, so you know, we had a guy came in, seemed like this was going to be a, a bronchial artery bleed, and you both mentioned bronchiectasis is sort of a major cause of these types of bleeding, basically because you have inflammation there and because you can get eroding into the bronchial arteries. So, Chris, we we talked a lot about airway protection. We talked about imaging. I guess one question is, you know, for airway protection, you know, what threshold do you have? You know, I feel like it's clear when it's clear. You know, they're desatting. They're not doing well. They can't clear their secretions. They're altered. We're doing it. But if they, is there any threshold you have if the blood just keeps coming? Like how often that you're just going to say they need this? And then, you know, my other question is sort of about the imaging. I think you mentioned CTA sort of being the, the imaging test of choice. What percentage of these patients usually get them? Like how high priority is this? If you're a new pulmonary fellow and you're doing the consultant, like how hard should you be pushing for it? Yeah, uh, good questions. So I think to answer your, your second question first, uh, I actually think CT, CT angio is a pretty high priority, but the patient has to be stable. So I think, you know, when I get, I got a lot of these consults uh, as an IP fellow and, you know, we're getting them now as an attending. And the, the, the big thing is if they're stable to go on and get a CT scan, then I think that's my first step typically, just because it can localize and potentially even be helpful for the, inter, our interventional radiology colleagues to do a bronchial artery embolism if it, cause that at the end of the day is, is typically the definitive treatment, at least in the short term. Awesome. Well, it sounds like imaging is going to be a really big priority for us then. But I want to go back to my first question that I noticed you conveniently dodged, but it's a question I often really struggle with. You have a patient, you know, they're definitely desetting a little bit. They had one big episode and then I go down and I talk to them and they're like, I don't know, doc, I feel okay. It's happening. And then they have another episode. I get paged again. And it's like, when am I pulling the trigger just to, just to get a tube in and, and until we can figure everything out? Yeah. So I, I think that's partially the million dollar question, right? Because we talked about how you want your patient to be able to to maintain their own airway because that is the most effective way of clearing the secretions. But at a certain point, you know, it becomes, well, we have to do something. And you're right, you know, the, there's clear cut cases, but in these patients who are sitting there talking with you and in between coughing up drops of blood becomes a kind of a difficult conundrum. You know, I think, and that's where you have, you're, you bring in your multidisciplinary, you know, group, which is, you know, either your intensivist or your hospitalist who's managing the patient, your interventional radiology colleagues who are going to be the ones hopefully doing the bronchial artery embolism, if that's the cause. Um, and even your surgeons can be involved in, in some of these cases, depending on, you know, what we think the cause is. At the end of the day, if your patient's sitting there talking with you, um, you can have a discussion with them. But, you know, I think until you kind of piece everything together, that, that really is a difficult thing to do. I don't know, Matt, if you had other thoughts about that. No, I, I agree. I think that's always kind of the million dollar question is, is, is when to proceed with that. And like you had said before, too, I think the really important thing to know is if you are going to pull the trigger and, and intubate your patient who's intermittently having hemoptysis, you, you really have to be ready to then move forward with, with doing stuff because the minute you intubate them and sedate them and 
take away their ability to clear their airway on their own, then you're really drawing a line in the sand and saying, yeah, now I, I have to move forward and, and do something, whether it's bronchoscopically trying to treat something or securing their airway enough where they can be stable to go to IR. To follow up on that, Matt, you bring up a great topic worth discussing further. You and Chris are both interventional pulmonologists. So if you now have an intubated patient, can you talk about the bronchoscopic techniques and interventions that you envision doing in this scenario or a similar one? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think kind of Chris had alluded to it before, just being very methodical when you go in. Um, there may or may not be a lot of blood in the airway or at least even clots. So I think clearing the airway um, first is obviously your first priority, making sure that the patient can oxygenate and, and ventilate appropriately. So if there are a lot of clots, you want to get those out, whether that's through you know therapeutic suction through your bronchoscope or you know even cryo cryo um, excision of those clots is something that we can do often with with uh, our tools. Um, but making sure that the airway is clear and then making sure that you can actually keep at least one side of the airway clear is really really important. And then oftentimes we use a lot of other stuff like ice saline is kind of our go-to, which is really just saline that's put in a basin full of ice and cooled. It's nothing fancy. Anyone can really do it, but it works really, really well. And that's pretty much our go-to. So whenever we're trying to clear blood in the airway or clots, we'll use ice saline. And the, the idea is that it vasoconstricts and it'll calm down any potential bleeding that's going on, whether it's local in the mucosa or even kind of distal out in the parenchyma where we can't see it. But definitely clearing the airway first is priority and then looking to see if you can localize. So your next step is trying to figure out, is it coming from the right or the left um, or where it's coming from? Um, if you can localize it to a side, that's great. If you can localize it beyond that, whether it's a low bar airway or even more distal than that, that's even better. If you can localize it pretty distally, then you always have the option that you can kind of wedge your scope in that, in that lobe or in that airway, do ice saline there, even apply suctioning um, to kind of collapse the airway um, proximally so that the blood will clot off behind it. Those are obviously ideal situations where you can get to that point where, you know, the whole airway is clear except for one small area. If, you know, there's something in the airway that you can treat, that's great. You know, we we can use laser therapy or, or APC, which is just kind of like a, a cautery device that we can deploy in the airway to kind of burn whatever might be bleeding. That's That's helpful if it's something that you can see, obviously. If the bleeding is coming from the parenchyma or, or distally, like in most of the bronchial artery bleeds, then, you know, there's not going to be a lot that you can do therapeutically to kind of cool the bleeding other than, you know, wedging and and uh, doing ICL and Vaj and then just securing that side. So if, if it gets to the point where you do need to secure a side, then, you know, selectively intubating over your bronchoscope is always something that you can do. And that's very easy and doesn't require other other technical tools like a bronchial blocker. It's obviously easier to do on the left, becomes slightly more difficult on the right since you run into the issue with your right upper lobe takeoff and you you may end up kind of blocking off your right upper lobe there. Um, but if you have to do that, you can. And then, you know, bronchial blockers are, are helpful. If you have the bronchial blocker available and, and you know how to use it, it's it can be very helpful to kind of occlude a smaller part of the airway where you're not kind of forfeiting, you know, a whole part of your lung. Bronchial blockers are tough though. They're you know, one, it's hard to actually use them when you aren't dealing with bleeding coming at you. Um, when you're dealing with a lot of bleeding and you're trying to do the technical stuff that requires placing the bronchial blocker, it can be kind of difficult. And then they move. Uh, so they can move, they can migrate. 
especially if patients are coughing. A lot of times we may paralyze these patients so that we can kind of keep the bronchial blocker in an adequate position. That, that can be trickier, but I think anyone can, you know, selectively intubate a side and, and use ice saline and, and get your scope wedged in an area if, if, if you are able to do that. The bronchial blocker is always a question I feel like comes up and, and I'm always, you know, I feel like trying to defer, you know, say, let's, let's get the, get them protected and then get them to IR where they get a definitive solution. So it's good to hear from the expert that, you know, it's just a, just a temporizing. And I, I think to highlight a couple other things you said, just for everybody out there listening, you know, protecting the side, if you know what side the bleeds on, that's huge. That's like part of the getting that chest x-ray and CT early, you know, you could selectively intubate. That's also where this thing comes about putting a side down. So, you know, I feel like it's always counterintuitive, but if you know the bleeding's on your right side, you put the patient right side down so the blood can't drip over into the left and clog that. And, and then back to basic nerding out physiology, a lot of times those patients desat because the gravity dependent cardiac output is going to this downside that's filled with blood. So the ventilation and perfusion mismatch is totally off. You know, you have uh, less blood going up to the good side of the lung, but it's something you have to do to sort of just protect for the next step. All right. Well, thanks, Matt. That's awesome. So this case, exactly what you guys kind of said happened. Patient was stable enough to go to a CAT scan, ended up finding a localized bleed uh, in the left lower lobe. They had ongoing bleeding, which made it unstable for them to get to the IR suite. They were eventually intubated, actually taken to bronchoscopy and a balloon was placed temporarily and then sort of rushed to IR where they ended up having embolization and, and eventually extubated a few days later. So a, a case that sort of followed all of the uh, the twists and turns that you guys mentioned. Thanks, Dave. This was really a great case to go through altogether. And I also think it is worth mentioning after this acute period, I have seen some residual small volume hemoptysis, so usually darker blood or small clots, that patients may expectorate after embolization in the 24 to 48 hours post-procedure. So definitely something um, everyone listening should be mindful of. In addition, specific to our patient with a history of CF, a mainstay of treatment has been aggressive airway clearance with hypertonic saline and plumazime, as well as chest PT in the inpatient setting. But these are definitely interventions that you should hold when your patient is presenting with hemoptysis and can be added back in a stepwise fashion. And I usually wait 24 to 48 hours after hemoptysis has completely resolved before reinitiating these therapies. You know, I'm still thinking about everything Matt and Chris just taught us about acute massive hemoptysis. But first, we have another consult coming in. So we have a 74-year-old gentleman with a history of AFib on warfarin. He has a history of COPD, a 40-pack year history, but he quit about 10 years ago, um, not on any HOMO2. History of chronic kidney disease, coronary artery disease, status post um, percutaneous coronary intervention on dual antiplatelet therapy, hypertension, and diabetes presenting with hemoptysis. And I did look into this, Matt, and I answered some of the questions that you got earlier. Um, so for you and Chris, I can expand. From a clinical standpoint, he had a desaturation to 92%, but is now on two liters nasal cannula, saturating 99%. I would say he's hemodynamically stable with a heart rate in the 90s and a blood pressure of 145 over 86, which is about his baseline. Other notable histories that his grandson recently had upper respiratory symptoms for the last three to four days including a sore throat and runny nose. And then last day or two, our patient has noticed that he's been coughing more. He woke up this morning and he had some sputum with flecks of blood and increased to about a tablespoon size amount of blood and sputum that was mixed. 
So based on that case presentation and consult, Matt, what would be your differential diagnosis for small volume hemoptysis? For small volume hemoptysis, I tend to think more in terms of like bronchitis, pneumonia, infection, especially in patients who are already on anticoagulation and may be more predisposed to having additional bleeding than you might expect otherwise. Other things that stay on my mind are still lung cancer, you know, patients with bronchiectasis, things like that. They can still have lower volume hemoptysis and and may not always present in, in a massive fashion. You can also just get bleeding if patients are on substantial anticoagulation. So we do see that sometimes, even if there's no underlying insult that we can pick up, patients who are significantly anticoagulated, sometimes we will see them bleed, whether that's in a diffuse manner, or even sometimes it's more localized. So we do see that. And then occasionally we'll see patients in heart failure. And if they're coming in with significant pulmonary edema, especially if they have other underlying comorbidities that puts them in need of anticoagulation, and get kind of capillary rupture from the back pressure from kind of LV overload. And the capillary rupture plus their anticoagulation can really look a lot like hemoptysis or even large volume hemoptysis. Chris, for this type of patient, probably going to need a little bit of guidance. You know, what type of labs are you most interested in in having for them? And then how helpful is imaging in this small volume case? You know, we talked about imaging in the large volume, which I I think we all have taken home the great point that, you know, CT is a top priority, but is it helpful here? Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, So first of all, Monty, I want to congratulate you on your ability to to take a succinct history and physical. Uh, that That was really well done. (laughs) Uh, In terms of labs, you know, obviously we're going to want to get some coags and in particular an INR in this patient who has, who's on warfarin, you know, perhaps their diet changed or they're on a new medication, uh, you know, and their INR is now like eight or something like that. And that could be the cause um, above anything else. I want to know the platelets as well. Although even with a normal platelet count in this patient, you're going to be a little bit concerned about uh, platelet dysfunction just in the setting of being on dual antiplatelet therapy. So I think those are the big labs I want to, and then, uh, you know, hemoglobin just to make sure there's no anemia that, you know, either could be caused by this or would make his function or his uh, reserve worse. I would also kind of want to know what his baseline functional status is. Um, if he, you know, he has COPD, so what, you know, what does his most recent PFT show? Does he have enough reserve that I can kind of be cautious and wait? Or is this something that I'm going to have to be a little more concerned about? And then also same thing with an echocardiogram, just again, to help kind of risk stratify in my mind. To answer the imaging question, you know, as a as an interventional pulmonologist, I'm pretty much never going to turn down a, a CT scan. And I do think they can be helpful. If this gentleman hasn't had a recent CAT scan. I would probably get one if he can handle contrast even better. But because in some patient like this, you know, there might be an undiagnosed malignancy that's causing this or, or something else that would have to be, you know, kind of sussed out on the, on an image. And I think it's always going to be helpful. And it's also a little bit less invasive than putting a, a bronchoscope in. Definitely agree. And You know, now thinking about this patient compared to our first scenario, you know, I think the triage decision has to be now, what do we do with this patient? Do we admit him versus can he be discharged home? And I'd like to ask you, Matt, what would you, how do you decide whether someone like this patient should be admitted versus being discharged home with close follow-up? Yeah, that's a great question, Monty. Um, It's also sometimes a difficult decision, but I think a lot of it goes back to kind of their physiologic reserve and and the potential for things to get worse. Um, So 
you know, if you do get your imaging and it reveals an underlying process, then that's that's one story. But if you're unclear of the underlying process that might be driving the hemoptysis, especially in someone who, you know, has significant COPD and some other comorbidities that might put their physiologic reserve lower, you know, I, I'd kind of be a little bit more cautious and admit them at least for observation and make sure that one, things don't escalate in terms of how much hemoptysis they're having and two, to figure out what you'll end up doing with their you know, blood thinners and their dual antiplatelet regimen. All right, great. So this patient was uh, was admitted for having a little bit of an oxygen requirement and some concern for that reserve that Matt mentioned uh, and his warfarin was held, but he was continued on his dual antiplatelet. He did have ongoing coughing and later that night he brought up two tablespoons of blood with no clots and there was some admixed sputum. So there's a mostly dark blood mixed with sputum and, and not bright red. Chris, what you guys get consults like this all the time. You're the IP. Everybody wants you to look at everybody's lungs. What makes the trigger for you to bronchoscope this patient? Say he has a CAT scan. There's no clear source, no mass that you're looking for. Should they be calling you back again when this happens? Are you going to put a scope down to look? Or is this the type of thing where clinical picture looks good, you know, keep managing and, and we'll take the next steps afterwards uh, after they get discharged? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I think everybody gets scared about coughing up blood in the airway. So, you know, it, there's, I'm never going to be upset if a consultant calls me back uh, about a, a repeated bout of hemoptysis. Now, what you described doesn't sound, doesn't sound particularly uh, stressful or scary to me. Um, it sounds like this guy probably has either uh, a bronchitis flare um, uh, or, or potentially even a small pneumonia, but um, it sounds like it's pretty stable. There aren't a bunch of clots able to protect his airway. So, you know, I think in this situation, you know, I would recommend just continued conservative management. You know, the other thing that I would like to bring up that we haven't touched on yet is uh, inhaled tranexamic acid. You know, there was a there have been a few, there have been a couple of Cochrane reviews that have looked at this, both IV and PO. But I think the, stu the landmark study that we all kind of quote now is the 2018 study that was in chest, where they looked at in this particular type of patient, you know, the submassive hemoptysis, looking at inhaled tranexamic acid versus inhaled saline, which was the placebo. And the patients who got the inhaled TXA, you know, were out of the hospital uh, quicker. They had quicker resolution of symptoms. And then at 12 months, they actually had fewer recurrences. So I think that should be in the back of everybody's mind uh, or in your armamentarium for this uh, kind of submassive hemoptysis. I was going to ask about that because I feel like that's a practice change that like spans my time Maybe having consults is something to offer for these patients. Are there any other things that we that we should watch out for or that the medicine team should watch out for when they're doing TXA NEBS, like anything to be concerned about or pretty well tolerated and just a, a good solution for this small volume? Generally speaking, uh, it is very well tolerated. Same side effects with any nebulizer, maybe a little bit of a sore throat, but really th there's not much in the way of systemic issues that are associated with this. Even in the IV formulation, as I was looking through some of the reviews, there was, there's not there's not much uh, in the way of side effects. So it's, it's almost one of those things where it's just reflexive for me to tell people to, to start giving it. It's awesome. Put it in, I'm going to put it in my dot phrase. <laughs> maybe that's why I started using it so often in the last year is because of uh, Chris's dot phrase. <laughs> so coming back to our second case of small volume hemoptysis, we have a 74-year-old gentleman with both a significant pulmonary and cardiac history, on dual antiplatelet therapy, as well as systemic anticoagulation, who we decided to admit for further observation in the setting of small volume hemoptysis in a new O2 requirement of 2 liters nasal cannula. 
He was able to protect his airway and secretions and never required intubation. His INR on admission was 2.3 in the setting of AC on, on warfarin for his history of AFib, which was held. Given that he had a PCI in the last year, we kept him on his dual antiplatelet therapy. We did do a dry CT uh, chest on him given his underlying CKD. We held off on contrast, uh, but the CT showed no evidence of infection or malignancy, but he did have some faint bilateral interstitial markings. Given his sick contact history, we pursued an infectious workup. He was COVID negative, but his RBP was positive for rhinovirus. So we attributed his small volume hemoptysis to an underlying bronchitis, secondary to a viral infection, and he was predisposed to small volume hemoptysis given his systemic anticoagulation and dual platelet therapy. He was started on inhaled TXA for 24 hours in typical um, Chris Kath recommendations. His hemoptysis resolved by hospital day two. He was weaned to room air and rechallenged on warfarin given his high CHADS VAS score and ultimately discharged home and will be seen for an INR check and hospital follow-up next week. Well, this was awesome, guys. We really appreciate you taking the time. Any final tips or pieces of advice for people out there about you know, dealing with hemoptysis and then how, how to contact and any friendly advice for their reaching out to the interventional palm team? Don't be afraid to ask for help. So we're always around um, both, you know, our teams and, you know, thoracic surgery, ENT, you know, anyone, anyone is around. So if you are worried, this is always a reasonable thing to, to call someone about. Yeah, I, I'd echo that. And I think the importance of having a multidisciplinary team in, in situations like this uh, is, is critical to, to success. You know, you're intubating and taking somebody to the Bronx suite, and then you're calling IR and you're taking them over there. And then potentially you're talking to your surgeons and you have your anesthesia colleagues involved. So um, as with anything in probably any walk of life, communication uh, and, and getting the right people involved is, is critical to, uh, to helping patients out. Birth. We have another consult coming, so Pompeet listeners, stay tuned for another upcoming episode of our top consult series. Before we go to our next consultants, there are five pearls that I'm leaving here today with. Always determine the clinical stability and respiratory status of your patient with hemoptysis. Matt mentioned amount, frequency, and color of blood is going to be important to know when calling your pulmonary and IP colleagues for help. Always assess airway status. As Chris mentioned, if your patient can protect his or her airway and manage secretions, you do not want to take that natural reflex away from them. But if they can't and you need intubation, discuss the ability to place a large bore ET tube, preferably 8-0 or larger, with the airway team at your institution. Remember the lungs have two sources of circulation, as Firth nerded out about, both the bronchial and the pulmonary circulations, and call for help early in these cases. Well, thanks everyone for listening to the Palm Peeps. Check out our website for some differential uh, schemas for hemoptysis and approaches to a consult like this, and also some pictures uh, of chest x-rays and imaging that you can expect to find with hemoptysis. This episode was produced, recorded, and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor, and the music was original music made by Eric Rogers.